Welcome back, party people, to Second Cup. I am your host, Tim Heller. My guest today for this episode is my friend Adam Roberts. Buckle up, because Adam does a lot. Adam is a vocal coach, PABA-recognized vocologist and music director, co-founder and chief creative officer of Resolution Creative, co-founder and producing artistic director of Tilt Performance Group, and the director of music at St. Luke United Methodist Church here in Austin, Texas. Before we dive in, if you've been listening to the show and enjoying it, I'd like to invite you to show support for us in any of the following ways. First is by sharing episode links on social media and tagging at Tim Heller Creative. Second is by rating, leaving reviews, and subscribing in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening and watching. Third is subscribing, liking, and commenting on YouTube, Tim Heller Creative. And finally, if you want to support financially, you can Venmo me at Tim Heller Creative or reach out to me through email at Tim at TimHellerCreative.com. We can discuss sponsoring one or several episodes or uh, just shoot the shit. Now, top off your beverage, get comfy, and enjoy this episode of Second Cup with Adam Roberts. Amazing. Yes. God, I love those glasses. Those are freaking dope. Thank you. Yeah, they're fun. <laughs> they're fun. Got to have the glasses game. Yeah, especially for us people with terrible eyesight. You got to, right. if you're going to, if you got to have the thick lenses, you got to have something bold to go with them. That's awesome. 100%. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me for a little conversation this morning. We have lots to talk about and I am, I'm so excited to have you on and just to see you again. It's been a minute. Life has yeah, been crazy same. since the last time we, uh, we chatted. I know. How's my sound? It's great. It's great. It I think, okay. yeah. Am I coming through? Okay. Am I, I'm yeah, just getting cool. used to the new gain levels on this podcast, mic, And I feel like I'm not getting enough power to it. So if no, you sound awesome. Lovely. Yeah. Um, so Adam K Roberts, uh, I would love for the listeners to hear a little bit about you for those who aren't familiar, like who you are, where you're from, where you're at now, what you're doing. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, as you said, my name is Adam Roberts and I am an Austin based artist and creative. Uh, I wear several hats around the, uh, creative community. I am a co-founder and the producing artistic director of tilt performance group, which is a theater company that is dedicated to shattering disability stereotypes. We are comprised of artists with disabilities and we've been around for nine years now next year will actually be our 10th year anniversary so very excited congratulations yes thank you thank you uh i'm also the uh, co-founder and the chief creative officer of resolution creative which is a company that is now oh close to three years old i suppose and we do creative work for artists and creatives. So branding and digital media strategy, but also uh, my partner, Dave Hawks, is an amazing um, photographer and videographer. And so uh, we get assets for clients that are for content and things like that. So we do a lot of work between here, New York City, and sometimes LA. So that is something that uh, has been very rewarding. And um, I also am a vocal coach and a vocologist, which is uh, a term that a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with, but it's really looking sort of at the um, scientific side of the voice, um, vocal anatomy, physiology, perception, um, and also ways in which um, medical interventions can happen with the voice with injured and disordered voices. Um, so mm. that's sort of my approach with a lot of the clients with whom I work, whether they be speaking voice clients or singing 
clients. Um, and finally, I am the uh, musical director for uh, St. Luke United Methodist Church here in Austin. Uh, and I also do a lot of musical direction and conducting around town at the Long Center and at various other places for sort of one-off productions and things like that. Yeah, so it sounds like you have a lot of free time to kind of just noodle <laughs> around. <laughs> On occasion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I just, but I remember. Know, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's great because I think a lot of folks who are in the arts and the creative sectors don't have enough to do or they don't necessarily know how to get to do the things that they want in a practical way. And I'm just so grateful and blessed to be able to do these things. Um, and I and I certainly don't take that for granted. So even in the times when it seems overwhelming and like there's too much to do, that's when mm -hmm. I do. I step back and say, look, so many people would love to be doing what you're doing. And so let's have the gratitude yeah. for yeah, and you five years ago, a year ago, or would be so stoked to be where you're at and doing what you're doing. And it's exactly. I, I love being able to take that step back. Yeah, it is so important. And it's and it's really hard to do sometimes. It feels like your feet are glued to the ground wherever you are in that moment. Um, but yeah, ah, oh, I'm okay. So, man, we got a lot to talk about. Uh, I <laughs> would first love to dig into um, how you started finding your way into voice work and vocology because. Um, we connected through um, social media and, and through like the shared connection of Texas State. And you had, had done a class with uh, Caitlin Hopkins, uh, the head of the musical theater program down there. Uh, and I took a voice lesson with you and we chatted about back injuries and stuff like that. We can dive into that stuff too. Um, and I just, I really love the way that you approach singing training, at least for me, for somebody who's really, really insecure about their singing voice uh, and who, who uses their voice every day for their job. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit more about what attracted you to the voice and to helping people find confidence and, and your specific methodology of, of teaching and coaching. Yeah, you know, that's a it's kind of an interesting story in the sense that it came later on in my in my career um, to date. Anyway, I started uh, really in the arts and creative sector, I guess, um, when I was a kid playing piano, like, you know, my parents said, we, you know, what activities would you be interested in? And they tried a few things and then hit on piano. And that was something that actually initially I stepped back from. I was not interested in it. Um, mm. Then when I got with a different teacher, um, that changed a lot. And then I just kept going from there. Uh, and parallel to that, I really got into sort of the dance world. And that was where I spent a lot of my uh, uh, growing up time was in the dance studio. Um, I was very fortunate to have parents who were incredibly supportive and would go out of their way to do things like um, take my sister and I to New York so I could study dance there in the summers and things wow. like that. Um, and uh, really wonderful, wonderful support and, and um, encouragement from, from my family. And so uh, I would do a lot of choreography when I was in undergrad. I would choreograph for various high schools and various different productions in the area as a way to sort of make money while I was doing uh, school. But I was in school for music theory. So I got my bachelor's degree in music theory where I was a piano principal. So I was accompanying a lot of vocalists, but I, in no way was I sort of into the voice world at that point. Mm -hmm. 
And I went to Florida State, got a master's degree in music theory. And while I was there, Florida State has a huge, huge musical theater program. Yeah. So yeah. what I did a lot of was accompanying the musical theater studio students at FSU while I was there. And during that time, I really got into doing a lot of coaching for musical theater. And I think a lot of folks may not necessarily, if they've never done singing training, may not make the distinction between coaching and, and sort of the singing training world. So as a coach, you really work with people. You might, usually coaches are pretty, pretty good pianists and they sort of help people act a song or engage with a song in a certain way. They might help them find repertoire. Whereas singing teachers tend to be people who are um, really training the voice from a, from a physiological perspective, expanding range and the technical things. And if there is any question about a potential voice pathology or things, that tends to be the domain there. So I wasn't doing any of that stuff. I was totally doing the coaching work. And I moved to uh, Austin in 2005 and was in grad school again at UT. And during that time, I enrolled in a vocal pedagogy course. And it was really just because it sounded interesting. And I met Darlene Wiley, who is still a good friend. And Darlene was teaching that course. And it was very classically oriented. But because of my background with musical theater coaching, uh, she had asked me to sort of lead um, a few of the classes in strategies for teaching musical theater voice. Cool. And through that year of doing that, I really got into um, coaching musical theater. I had a couple of people at UT come up to me and say, do you, do you teach musical theater voice? And I said, no, not really. And they said, well, we think you should, and we'd like to study with you. And so <laughs> fast forward to these years later, um, I always had a sort of a, a scientific bent with regards to things like the voice. And so I actually, a pandemic project sort of, was that I finally enrolled in this um, fairly new program um, at Lamar University, um, graduate program that was a vocology certification. So a lot about um, very objective measurements of the voice, uh, acoustics, mm -hmm. auditory perception, voice science. Um, and so finished that program up um, about oh, eight months, six months, eight months or so ago, and then sat for the exam and the portfolio to become a, uh, a recognized vocologist by PAVA, which is the professional organization of vocology. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. That's so much. Yeah. That's so cool. It's such a, a, a wonderful blend of science and art all in the, in, in, all in one in this one little area well i guess it's really like this whole area but go. it's uh yeah yes yeah it's really from your pelvic floor all the way to the yeah. tip of your head so <laughs> well you know all about those things and i think that um you know the thing is that i am always about because i i really only coach and teach in train in the contemporary commercial music realm which includes mm -hmm. things like musical theater which is sort of my bread and butter, but also pop, rock, folk, things that aren't really part of the classical world. And yeah. I think that because there is so much high octane demand, both in terms of people's performing schedules in this contemporary commercial world, but also just in terms of the notes and the tessitura and all these things that are required. The vocal gymnastics that, they, that yes. commercial music demands of people. Absolutely. And so I think it's important. I don't think that every singing teacher needs to be 
as equipped with the vocal science and and all of these measurements and 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 instrumentation and all of these things necessarily. But I do think it's important to have a few people in sort of each city or region, you know, of the country that are available to do that because we often will then get referrals to to work with those people specifically. And so that's yeah. what I think is important. So yeah, that's awesome. You know, speaking of the like the sustainability of the voice and the vocal gymnastics and everything and the high demands on commercial performers and singers, um, Jess, my wife, went to Harry Styles at the Moody Center last week, and we we love his music, and he's obviously, like, an, an incredible performer, but she said uh, she came back from that with the biggest takeaway of, like, I have a whole new respect for how he planned out that show vocally, just because Jess is a, an amazing singer as well, and she's like, I just, the whole time was obsessed with, like, how he planned out each song to get to the hard stuff last, and how he navigated that, and what, like, how he kind of, like, trailed off when he needed to, like, pump the brakes a little bit, or, and, I, like, I just can't even imagine, I mean, I mean, can't imagine in some ways of like singing shows eight eight times a week but doing a show like that it's it's important to have people like you around that uh that can help educate people on how their instrument works it's just like knowing how a car works how to fix a car and how it runs most efficiently you need to know all of the moving parts and and the voice and the throat and the face have a surprising amount of moving parts <laughs> oh, so many and you know the thing is it's um you, and you alluded to this just now i always say because people will ask me to like come and perform as a vocalist and i am not a performer as a vocalist by any means i'm a pianist um first uh -huh. and foremost but i do say because then people will say well how do you teach voice then and i do think in my case it is very much i use the exact analogy you just used which is being a mechanic um, for the voice. Um, and I don't think you have to be the car in order to work with the car. Yeah. You can and, be the uh, head of the pit, the uh, pit crew and, exactly. and just, yeah, exactly. I think it, that's a really awesome. I, I love how you said that. Um, how we, how we teamed up to form that beautiful analogy, especially <laughs> right. with the, with the, uh, the oncoming of the Grand Prix at, at Coda at the end of the month. <laughs> that's exactly right. Timely. Sponsored. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Coda, please sponsor us. F1 sponsor us. We'll take, well, I'll, I'll represent any team you want. Just get me to the racetrack. Adam and I'll show up. That's right. <laughs> People be very confused that we're talking all about the voice, but whatever. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll incorporate it. I'll sing the national anthem and Adam will accompany me. Um, right. <laughs> so with all of the different uh, methodologies of teaching out there and like I, I know I, as a singer, and, and hopefully anybody out there who has been in a similar situation of uh, everybody's born with a voice, everybody's born with some kind of instrument, and I, I am of the mindset that anybody really can learn how to sing and sing well. Some people are born with a natural affliction, I guess, to it, and like my wife is one of those people who is just singing is like walking for her. It is so effortless. She works hard at it to, you know, to do a good job um, where somebody like me, I've really had a hard time finding that confidence and finding that vocal agility and finding whatever my real singing voice is and, and finding a foothold in, in being able to get up and sing in front of people, yeah. uh, even when it was, when I was doing it as a job. So part of that journey that I found difficult was finding a, a teacher and a methodology that I really gelled with. And so when we had Michael Moreska come into Texas state and do one voice, I was like, Oh, fuck yeah, this is 
like you're not trying to make me sound like somebody else. I had had a voice teacher there uh, that in the opera program which, who was really like I, I started picking up on, on what she was putting down in terms of trying to manipulate my voice to sound like somebody else that I wasn't. And so I did like a Nathan Gunn impersonation. And for people who don't know Nathan Gunn, he's a world famous baritone in, in the opera world. Um, and I, as soon as I did that, she was like, yes, that's exactly what you should be doing. And I said, great, cool. I'm not coming back again. Thank you very much. Um, so how do you, I guess, like, how, how do you pair with students who have had one methodology for a long time? And what do you recommend to people to finding, uh, like, the most important things that a teacher should offer? A teacher and not a coach, because I feel like if you've got a great teacher, you can it allows you to to develop the vocabulary and the muscle memory uh, in your instrument to translate what a coach is saying that they want you to do or want you to achieve in a healthy way. But for you, what is the what are the key benchmarks of a of a a great vocal teacher, voice teacher? Yeah, so I think one of them, in my opinion, is that they still maintain a certain amount of beginner students in their studio. Um, to me, it doesn't matter if you are working with the highest elite mm. of the industry. I think it's very important that uh, folks are still training at least a small percentage even of uh, beginning level students. Or if they don't have individual students in their studio, that they are going out and working in the community with beginning level students. Because I think that what happens is it gets so easy to take for granted so many things that perhaps a very advanced singer or an elite singer um, who is really doing this as, as their career, um, it can be very easy to take for granted things that those people are doing, but to be in service to the folks who have had more training, it's important not to be taking those things for granted and to sort of step back and look at our own biases as trainers. And I think the best way to do that is to continue to be working at least to some extent with some absolute beginners. So for me, it is very important that I'm always working as part of my schedule with absolute beginners, because that is where uh, you're not going to, to be taking things for granted, because that's where, you know, 75% of, of all of this of training to be a trainer comes into place is when you're working yeah. with folks who are beginners. And I think that that is, is really important. I also think that if you have worked with a system, like you mentioned, Michael Moreska in one voice, anything like, you know, that's an example, or Fitzmaurice technique or Alexander technique, which aren't necessarily only voice specific, but, you know, any number of Kristen Linkletter, Patsy Rodenberg, any, of, any mm -hmm. number of people that we could spout out right now, Estel, if you have worked in one of those techniques and you have found amazing success and you feel that, like that really works for you, then I think seeking out someone who specializes in that is a, is a great thing to do. I do not specialize and I like to incorporate a lot from each of those things, particularly the Alexander technique, but I do mm -hmm. not specialize in any one of those things. So if someone comes to me and says, hey, Estel has been amazing for me in the past, I really want to continue with that. I'm going to refer them then to an Estel practitioner. And so yeah. I think that that is something that is really important is to know if you're looking for uh, one methodology or if you're looking for maybe a smattering of things. Uh, you know, I always say for me, 
my goal is to help someone put all the pieces together. So if they bring in their whole wardrobe of what they've trained with other people, we're going to like kind of, maybe this is because of the brander in me, um, the branding person, but we're going to kind <laughs> of create the cohesive looks for the shoots, right? Um, yeah. And so that's that's my approach to to those sorts of things. And And frankly, I also think that a lot of the fundamental things that we're going to work to train in almost any person um, holding the breath. So many people hold the breath. So many yep. of these things are just consistent, constant things that I find myself sort of saying and coaching on the same, you know, things 60% of my day, no matter who the individual is. It may be a different manifestation in each individual, but I think that um, you want to be with someone who has a baseline understanding at least of the anatomy of the voice and um, of knowing when it's time to refer out to somebody else. I also think it is um, really important to interview a potential voice coach or trainer to ask them if they, and this is a tricky question to ask. So maybe it's figuring out how to ask this, or maybe it's asking their other students. Uh, but I think it's really important that that, that that person is not inherently bashing any style of singing as inherently bad. Yes. Oh, I love that you said that. <laughs> so, um, and I know I probably, even though I came totally from classical training as a music theorist, I went to school for eight years and all we did was classical music pretty much. I'm sure I have fallen guilty to having a bias against classical singing at times. Uh, I absolutely in no way think that classical singing is fundamental to singing in other styles or classical training, I should say. Yeah. Whereas I might think like ballet, if you're going to be a musical theater performer, if you're going to do more Western sort of forms of dance, I do think ballet is an important foundation for a mm -hmm. lot of those other things. I do not think that analogy carries over for the voice. In like terms if you of want to be a successful vocalist, you don't have to have had years and years of, of classical training on absolutely your if you do have that great then that is a foundation to start from and a wonderful one at that but it doesn't yes. mean that it should you should feel deterred from training your voice if you haven't already had that in no way and i think that thankfully it's becoming much more an old school thing that this happens but you know, you still do occasionally hear somebody who comes in and has worked, you know, in a, with a classical pedagogue who has told them that just point blank singing musical theater is unhealthy. And that is just factually inaccurate. It's so, I love with the dawn of TikTok, all of these uh, voice teachers and coaches that have come up. There's some really fantastic people that I really enjoy, like seeing their breakdown of things and just how much they love singing and love the human voice. And then yeah. there are some who are just like, you can't do this. You shouldn't do that. This is shit for your voice and it's shit for your career. You'll never survive. You'll never work. I'm like, okay, that's a little dated. That's a hugely yes. dated mindset. And you just, yeah, you I, like you said, you got to find the things that work from all of the different parts of your experience as a vocalist and and you as the as the teacher i, I love that you are piecing those puzzles together i think you do that beautifully uh, at least with me and and my complicated background and, and relationship with my voice uh and michael Mareska does that beautifully and um the only other voice teacher i've had that i really really love and in, in like from college on uh mike ruckles is somebody mm -hmm. in New York yeah. who I feel like does a really great job of that. And and like you is really on that scientific side of things Mike as well. Mike is very and, in that scientific vein. Yep. Yeah. And it's just the three of y'all have, have really, even though I struggle with my voice, have, I feel like 
each of y'all have helped me bring out a side of my voice that has at least given me confidence in the moment to to do that and be like, okay, cool. Like I am not just a dumpster fire singer. Like I, I tell myself, but it's, it's just a matter of like I tell people with voiceover and, and how to do a bunch of different voices for hours on end. It's just practice. It's working on a muscle and it's, and it's failing forward on a regular basis. You know, and I also think, and I was just saying this to a, a voice class of actors speaking voice class the other night. I also think that we, for some weird reason, and I'm not sure why this is because I don't think it happens in, in a lot of other arenas of activity, but with the singing voice in particular, it's almost like, well, if, if I am not Beyonce, Whitney, Celine, whoever else, right. Then I'm like automatically a zero. Yeah. And, and it's not worth it. You know, no people. Yeah. And that's ridiculous. I think. And I understand why people feel that way. Cause it's kind of a pervasive mindset, I think, but you know, that wouldn't stop you. If you, if you said, well, I'm not, you know, one of these NBA players that doesn't stop you from going and playing basketball on a league or, or pursuing the, the pursuit of being an NBA player or whatever. Right. You like, you yeah. still would go play basketball, but people will not say, um, frequently yeah. because they feel like the, that that's the only valid way to sing is like those people I just mentioned, right? And those people are outliers. I think that's very important to remember. It's not that you cannot reach those places because there are many, many, many Whitney's, Celine's, uh, you know, uh, Beyonce's that we just have never heard from. So yeah. it is possible to get to those places, but you have to remember that like, even when you reach that place, that is a small percentage of people and you should not, negate the use of your voice just because of that sort of like mythos that's out there. Right. Yeah. Um, I know personally I have like gone out and I feel like I'm a strong, strong actor, strong dancer. Uh, when I was able to, before my back stuff got bad enough, uh, that I had to stop and, uh, and, and like an okay singer, I'd gotten great feedback on it, but because I was comparing myself, not, not even to like the, the pop stars, but just the people in my industry or friends that I had that, I really admired the way that they could sing and the, and and how beautiful their voice was and I, I because I didn't sound like that I com, I consistently put my foot in my mouth and uh anxiety took over and it would completely crash my auditions and crash uh these some opportunities and I just could not get over that hump and so why why do you feel that singing is such a vulnerable experience Cause I will say like, I, I have ideas for silly videos and stuff like that. I want to like put out some nightmare before Christmas stuff and I'll sing in my, in my studio alone and do it and have a blast and be like, Oh, that sounded fine. But then time comes to like doing it in front of people or in front of a camera to put out. And I'm like, I just want to throw up all over the place. I think, um, I think that one huge thing that I learned when I really started, because like I said, I think it's very valuable to continue to work to some percentage with, um, beginning students. So I was teaching a beginning voice class, um, like kind of absolute beginners many years ago. And I started to realize when I would teach this class over and over that there was a massively recurring narrative that I would never have really thought about otherwise, again, taking this for granted, which is that so many people have been told that they have a terrible voice and should not sing. And that has, in many cases, comes from parents. Um, probably that's the, the biggest um, culprit is, is parents, in, at least mm -hmm. in terms of the stories that have been told to me. It often comes from um, maybe siblings, uh, friends, 
And the crazy social media, thing, have you heard too? Like social when media, people social put, media, yeah, absolutely. And the crazy thing is that these people almost always come in and have these incredible voices. I remember one student in particular, I don't think I'll ever forget her um, from all these years ago. And she came into this class and she was terrified to sing in front of people. And her voice was glorious. I mean, just incredible. I mean, you know, she could have been training for eight or 10 years to where she was just starting. And I, I said, you know, just out of curiosity, I mean, maybe it wasn't your desire to do this as a career or whatever, but why, why have you never pursued this? Because your voice is mm -hmm. out, like glorious. And she said, all oh, my parents always told me as a kid that I had a terrible voice. And that stays with people. And uh. her parents were clearly wrong. Um, and perhaps that was just because they didn't want to hear her at the time they were they she was you know loud whatever i don't know or they just were incorrect but um it's i think that so many people have heard that mm -hmm. um and i also think that you know it's a pretty well documented statistic that in the united states at least that public speaking is the number one fear um you know that eclipses death as a fear in the united states and so yeah. i think things with the voice if public speaking is that way, where we're not even holding out notes, right? When you start to hold out notes and then there is this fear of like your voice cracking or losing control or running out of breath, all these things, it becomes a snowball because of course, when the anxiety kicks in, that's all the things that are gonna happen. You're gonna lose control more because you're hyperventilating or your breath is not under control or mm -hmm. you're tightening and so all of the anxiety mechanisms physically are things that we try to eradicate in in singing performance so i think that that loop is so frequently in people's heads like why would i be doing this why would anybody want to listen to me uh yeah somebody told me i sucked as a vocalist all of all of these things it's amazing that people ever do feel super confident i think when they get up there to do yeah. this because it, it's, it's so impressive thing you know yeah yeah it's it's magnetic and that's why the the people who are doing it on a regular basis and who who are successful are successful because it is it's a magnetic thing of like wow i wish i could do that what what does that feel like that was a a constant thought in my head going through uh musical theater program is i god what does that feel like to have a voice like that what does it feel like to like feel those physical sensations and those vibrations of being a good singer um and and I don't and I want to be very clear. My parents never told me that I uh, <laughs> did not have a good voice. They were like your parents, incredibly supportive and and everything. And uh, but it's 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 all it's for the most part my own doing. But it's yeah, that's interesting with that correlation between public speaking and singing and um those uh, coping mechanisms that kick in of of not breathing. I find myself doing it sometimes even like when if I'm teaching a class to college students. If I'm like not completely on my game or I feel like I start to second guess myself, my voice starts to tighten up and I start to like drop back here and it's, and it's, it's just more of like this instead of like really breathing and, and using everything at my disposal. Yes, absolutely. And I think also, particularly in contemporary commercial fields, there is, 
there is this objective reality that there are certain notes that if you cannot hit these certain notes, you are not likely to be competitive in XYZ field, say Broadway, yeah. right? Oh, God, like if, yeah. If, How many times know, did I hear that if I didn't have an A by the time I graduated, I wouldn't work? And uh, that stuck so, yeah. so hard. Well, and that's one of those things that there is, I mean... This is hard because there is a little bit of a rea truth to that. There is a reality right, in, right. in that. And I think that that's where the that's where the Venn diagram crosses over between sort of anxiety and then also reality of of the profession. Um, but I think that that is something that can be mitigated. I mean, when you get in my mind when you're in a university situation, we all know universities are massively bureaucratic and, and, you know, not the sort of Pollyanna places that we would hope they would be for training. But I think that you're, you know, you have four years to train. Four years is a long time for someone who yeah. has already been accepted into a program that thus has demonstrated in the competitive world of musical theater programs these days, hopefully a very baseline foundational level of already having achieved like some kind of level some of vocal competence. Yeah. Right. And so I think that, you know, for me, that's a long time for somebody to train. And again, that doesn't mean that you get to work one-on-one -on -one with somebody all those four years or anything like that. But I do think it is in some ways incumbent on these, on these universities um, to really be able to recruit people who are experts as as um, voice trainers who really yeah. who really will be vocationally focused mm -hmm. uh, because I think a lot of what I have seen and I have a lot of many friends who are colleagues who are amazing and teaching universities I'm not in any way um, uh, downing that situation but I have seen a lot of folks who have been so craft focused as opposed to vocationally focused to perhaps have mm. fallen out of step with what the industry is currently doing and and wanting and yeah you could argue that you know when you go to, to college you're like learning craft or whatever but when you're you know in electrical engineering when you leave you better have these skills to be an yeah, electrical you got to be able to go out and work and that's the thing and i think that that's really important and if a individual school is very heavy on craft and and not necessarily on and I use that word craft as in like sort of tradition and like and and really looking Process at these things and like art with a capital A exactly right yeah um, then I think it's incumbent on them to be straightforward about that with people who are auditioning because the vast majority of eighteen year olds who are auditioning for these programs are assuming they're getting vocational training not sort of like. Yeah process craft training and i think it's it's not right to withhold that stance and philosophy and process when that yeah. is your philosophy as a school and a program uh so i think that that's part of all of that as as well yeah i, I love that separation of craft and vocation that i'm gonna that's gonna stick with me for a little bit um, they can go together cool but to you see. can't sacrifice yeah yeah, you can't sacrifice vocation for the craft. I mean, in some instances you can, right? It's like if you've got the time built in to like four years is like you said a lot of time. So you have that time to like kind of break things down into the the what is the the foundation of the craft first and how to stay curious in developing the craft but then also translate it to vocation. So that's 
I'm going to ponder on that for a minute. That's awesome. <laughs> and that, um, I'm sure there's plenty of people that would argue with me on that, and that is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and that's the other thing, too, that's so interesting in in – in this vocation of, of, of voice work, whether it's what I'm doing uh, more often, which is voiceover or singing in, in musical theater and still being so close to that world is all of these like, like super like black and white opinions on like, like we've already touched on a little bit of like, you can do this, you can't do that and, and be successful. But um, let's, and that, like I said, it's what I appreciate about you, um, Michael Maraska and, uh, and, and Mike Ruckles is that it's just like, yeah, let's just take, take what, your journey has been so far and translate it into, um, something, something improved. Well, thank you. And I want to ask you, how did you get into voiceover specifically? Cause you have a musical theater degree, right? Yep. So yep. how did you get into voiceover? Um, so I, I, I grew up doing silly voices and making people laugh and, uh, got addicted to that first. Yeah. And, um, in, college i i kind of let that go because i was so f solely focused on that on that vocation of musical theater and and the craft of like i need to figure out who i am as an artist and who i am like all the all the crunchy granola stuff that you go through or that i feel like a lot of people go through in in college um mm. and i'd kind of forgotten about i'd i'd let the voices kind of drop and and didn't really know that voiceover was like a really sustainable career uh, and then in New York in like 2017 had, uh, several people in the course of like a month come up to me and say, Hey, you should really start looking into voiceover. Like, uh, you do these voices and you're funny and you improv and do this stuff. So, uh, just be curious about it. I was like, okay. So I took a class, uh, with a casting director for five weeks and, uh, Andy Roth in New York, he casts a bunch of stuff and is an awesome teacher. Uh, and just broke it down, really made it accessible and fun. And he's like, this is a fun job. It should be fun. It should be easy. So just do that. And so I took his class and totally got hooked. Uh, and then, uh, like I've mentioned with my back issues and like we've had a long conversation about, uh, those eventually prevented me medically from being able to do physically from being able to do theater and uh, any other kind of like live performance work for a while. And so when that happened, I took a couple of days to freak out about it and then just threw my energy into voiceover. And it's, it's been a wonderful journey thus far. And it's, and it honestly has been, I, I think there was for me in singing and we've spoken about this before and um, people listening to this may know this or may not, but it's, I always had a complicated relationship with it. I still do because I love it so much. And it, it is this wonderful physical sensation and the storytelling sensation that um, I feel very connected to, but that I'm also really afraid of and feel a lot of resistance and, and, and um, a, a huge lack of confidence uh, with, because it is that vulnerable feeling of, I, I think I got to a point where I just was so afraid of it. I stopped doing it for long enough for me to kind of, have some rust develop on, on those skills. Um, but through doing voiceover and really, especially in the times where I'm busy with it, it reminds me a lot of a lot of the training that I went through with singing. And it makes me want to sing again because it's, it's fun and it's low stakes. And it's not like I need to sing well so that I can <laughs> make $300 a week at a regional theater. It's, uh, it's now I'm like, okay, cool. I found a way to sustainably support myself creatively. Now, what else? What else is going to scare me into a place of growth? And, and singing is one of that. those things. I love it. And I do think it's, you know, it is very tricky, even for people who, 
who are quite confident in their voice to go and stand in the middle of Ripley Greer or Pearl or 42nd Street Studios or whatever. Or Adele in front of millions of people. Like, I yeah. love when she was like, I have stage fright singing in front of people scares the shit out of me. I was like, oh, I'm getting Absolutely. goosebumps now thinking about it. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I, you know, Donny Osmond, who sort of famously performs forever and ever and ever and ever and without incident. And then when he did Joseph, the Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat tour, they actually had to cancel several of the performances because he developed this debilitating stage fright. And so it no doesn't. No way. It doesn't mean that it has to happen, you know, early on and then you, quote, get over it. I mean, you can be someone who's performed forever, never had that feeling, and then one day it's incapacitating. And so yeah. I think that's important for people to remember, too. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you all of a sudden, right? Mm -hmm. It can happen seemingly out of nowhere. And after you've had a long amount of really confident and... Um, uh, acclaimed sort of singing career, right? Yeah, and it's not going to be that way forever, too. That there is there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and that and the flip side of the coin is that if you don't, it it is okay if you don't want to perform anymore. You have permission to not do that, oh and, and to just do it for yourself, or to just be like, that was a wonderful chapter of my life. It's not doing for me what it was before. It doesn't serve me anymore, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna move on. Some of my friends who are the most incredible musicians I've ever met either decided early on that they weren't going to pursue it professionally or, uh, you know, did it for a bit and then decided that wasn't going to be the rest of their life and career. And some of the people I know who are the absolute happiest, um, when it comes to singing in their voice are avocational singers. So again, yeah. I don't think that at, to, to be a good singer, you must do it professionally. Like, there are all of these myths that are out there. And thankfully, funnily enough, as the science develops, they're starting to get broken down. And we can we can have hmm. we can cite studies and research and things that it, that make things not so opinion based. Right. And I think that that's an important correlation, too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, I feel like we could talk about <laughs> this forever. Um, I know, right? So yeah, this is what happened when we uh, went out for lunch. <laughs> we were like, oh, shit, it's been two and a half hours. Um, yeah. Okay, so I would love to hear kind of your journey with uh, creative entrepreneurship because that is something that I I felt we really connected on uh, when we chatted was this, A, the notion of being a starving artist is a long-dying trope uh, and that there's really, especially with all the um, access that, we have to uh, a camera in our, our phone or um, the internet and just being able to be self-reliant in building a business or in your case, several businesses um, to serve your creative spirit and serve your community. Um, when did you realize, or was this something that you were always kind of born with in terms of this entrepreneurial side of your brain that you were like, oh, cool. Like I want to, I want to jump into this and I want to, I want to build an actual business, whether that's uh, with tilt or resolution. And, and I'd love to hear too, specifically with resolution, what that process was like and um, how you, how you just figured it out and what you wish you would have known ahead of time. Yeah. You know, it's, this is an interesting question because <laughs> when I started out, I only ever wanted to work for other people. I never wanted to have a business. And, you know, the rest of my family yeah. are all morticians, everybody. And the rest of my family, morticians. 
and they own a funeral home in right outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, and I grew up around all of that all the time. And my, again, my parents were very specific with my sister and I saying, if this is not what you want to do, I mean, yes, it's been in the family, whatever, but if this is not what you want to do, you should not do it. You should do what you want to do. So I went a different way, but the, actually one of the primary reasons I went a different way was because I didn't want to own a business. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, <laughs> Look at you now. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I will say that I think that there are many ways, and I think people know this now, uh, that it's, an, it's kind of a new thing to think about, but there are many ways to be entrepreneurial without owning a business. I mean, aside yeah. from Revolution Creative, the other endeavors that I have really are primarily nonprofit focused in the sense that like Tilt is a nonprofit. I do not own Tilt. But mm -hmm. I was one of the three co-founders and am still the producing artistic director, right? So, so in terms of like actually owning a business, um, you know, uh, aside from being an, a sole proprietor, you know, where you might do a one-off voice coaching or something like that, um, because even, even the voice coaching that I do is through other um, entities, yeah. right, 99% yeah. um, of the time, uh, which is by choice. But... The Resolution Creative started because, um, you know, my business partner, Dave, who I mentioned before, is just this really, I think, fantastic photographer, videographer. And he also is young enough to have to actually have a degree in social media strategy. That's what Dave's degree is in, right? Wow. Um, and so he was one of the very first people to like, when, you know, to have that kind of degree actually from school. And so what happened was we were in New York and we were just, Dave was there kind of shooting a few friends of mine for, um, you know, artists and people like that for his own portfolio as a photographer. And one of my friends who is a former Broadway performer and now a writer uh, he said to us that day after we were, because I got very involved. It's hard for me just to stand back and be like, duh, 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 right? So I got <laughs> very involved in the coaching of all of this and very much the why of all of it, because this is the reason that the business started, really. Um, I started asking so many questions about the purpose of these photographs and mm -hmm. the sort of, the sort of, um, because brand really can come a lot back to mission and vision and values. And that can be something that individuals should discern for themselves, not just corporations and companies and nonprofits. And my friend had said at the end of this three hours where, where Dave was shooting him for his own portfolio, he said, you all should start a business because, you know, I just paid for like six months of career counseling. And in this three hours, just the questions you asked me to discern how to shoot photos of me feels like three times what I got out of that six months of career coaching. Yeah. And so Dave and I said, okay, well, so it's see, and, and we were getting some of this feedback from other people too, similar kinds of things. And so we said, okay, there's clearly something we're doing that's different here. And a lot of it is because we are asking some hard questions that bring mission, vision, and values into the individual sphere. Mm -hmm. And we also both really, really, really believe that, I mean, we both really kind of think social media is primarily a gross place, even though we have a social media company. Yeah, it's a necessary evil. 
Yes. And we think that you can be authentic on social as an artist and creative and still achieve the actual like objective goals that you're going for. It, it is a process. And so we actually um, developed an online course that takes people through um, in, in like 20 modules. Um, so it's, it's involved and people have looked at the workbook and said, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can like commit to this, but that's what it takes yeah. to do this authentically. Um, and so we developed this, this online course so that people can on their own, because, you know, of course, consulting and doing your assets and things as a whole package can get quite expensive. Yeah. And we wanted to offer something access is important to us both as well. And we wanted to offer something that was accessible where you could kind of DIY it if you put in the time and the discipline. And it's kind of what, you know, we would do as consultants and coaches. But if you can do it on your own, we wanted to have that version for people. Um, and so it's coming back to that why. And, and many photographers, you sort of get in there and you know what these are going to be used for. Are these going to be used for... Um, shoots that are uh, that are model test shots, or are these going to be for headshots, or what are they for? But when you're doing branded work, you really don't necessarily have that clear cut of a use for these assets a lot yeah. of the time. And so that's where we kind of come in. And we also do um, work for like companies and productions, and we do uh, you know uh, promotional trailers and all kinds of things like that. But the reason we started the company was because we kind of saw that other people weren't really doing this and that it was really catching on. People were asking to work with us as individuals. So we said, well, we might, we should start a company and really get it like forward facing out there into the world. And that's what we did. It was established January, 2020, an ominous date. Ah, what <laughs> um, wonderful timing. <laughs> I know, right. But thankfully has just really continued to be, um, again, we're very grateful. It's continued to be quite successful and, um, and uh, we've grown quite a bit in what it is that we're doing. So that's sort of the reason that that became the business that we own together and, um, you know, made sense to have in, in that way. Yeah. And that it's so cool. And I love that you said too, like being entrepreneurial doesn't mean you have to start a business. And I think for a long time for me that I was like, I'm not a business owner. Like I know in school we're told like we are our business and yeah. we are our own product that we are selling. And it's one thing to hear that and be like, yeah, that's sweet. And I like you did not really think about owning a business. Like I was never the person in high school who was like reselling on eBay or like always hustling on, a, on the side with something I wanted. I to be completely transparent, like I wanted to go to New York. I wanted an agent to find me work. And I wanted like, I, I will, I'm always proactive in what I'm doing, but I would love to have somebody that is going out on my behalf and find like getting me in these rooms so that I can do what I feel like I do best. But sure. then when that wasn't happening and you, and you find different ways to do that. And especially with voiceover, cause, and that's what I've loved about it so much is that I feel like I've got agency again over my own marketing and my, and, and it's been this whole process of discovering a brand and like finding out like, Oh, this is kind of fun to be entrepreneurial. And it's, and it doesn't have to look the same for me as it does for somebody who is selling a blog for $10 million, you know? Um, but to just it's listen to that little voice in the back of your head. Yeah. Go get, go get what you want and go. Like if you, somebody's asking you to do something, go try it, have fun with it. And if you, and if it's fun and you're vibing with it and you get that feedback, like what y'all got, then yeah, then take the next step and do another session or, or do another shoot and, and then turn it into a business if you feel like it. But it's, 
Yeah, that's really, really cool. And I love that you're serving the community in that way, too, of like helping people with <laughs> navigating this ever-changing landscape of social media. And it's uh, y'all do it on a whole nother level than what I do. And mine is just kind of telling people to like cut the shit out and realize that like you should just just make something, make something and put it on social media. You have a killer camera on your phone and just do it. And then y'all taking that to the next step of being like, okay, so let's fill in that, that ever important question of why. Yeah. And I really think that, uh, you know, people, people are very hesitant as artists, um, mm -hmm. artists and creatives to, and it's, you know, we, we really say what we do is digital because we certainly do websites. We certainly do, you know, other digital kinds of material. Um, but from so from a social media perspective, I think that a lot of people are just so afraid of commodifying themselves um, mm -hmm. and sort of selling something or being inauthentic or um, not having the time to devote to it or the desire to be to be doing certain things and putting themselves out there in a certain way. And we work just like I do as a voice trainer, we work with people where they are and we say, okay, well, how much time do you have? Well, let's, let's plan for that, you know, yeah. um, as opposed to saying you must do this and this and this, or you will not be successful because just like in the voice world, that is not true. Yeah. There are some musts, but there, but there are few, um, yep. not everything is a must or must not. Yeah. And, uh, we, I don't think we've, I don't think so far we've worked with a client who has just said, oh, I just can't do it. Right. Yeah. There are a couple of people who have been, um, I think, what's the word uh, that I want to use? Um, intimidated maybe a little bit just by the scope of the workbook for our course. Yeah. But we tell people you can work through it at your own pace and you, right, get something written down for your why. Your why can change in a week. Yeah, but get something written down now and proceed to the next page, right? Don't start. spend too much time. You gotta yeah. get going. When you wait for the muse or you wait for perfection, you will not create. Yep, you will die waiting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to say that to myself at the beginning of this of this year. It was like I, I just am consuming other people's work all the time. I say I'm a creative person, but what do I have to show for it? And and it really wasn't much. And so I was like, I just am gonna start. Be and the why was because I felt like I had to, because I, my, I felt like my soul was empty in terms of creativity and, and work. And I felt awful about myself. I was like, I'm not connecting with people. I'm not like, it, it was a, a bunch of different reasons, but the main why was because I was like, I'm a creative person. I need to create something. And so just start making stupid videos or just start talking about stuff that you know about start yes. make it shitty and, and refine, refine, refine. Well, the thing is social media and digital media, but social media specifically is a, is a stage that is available mm -hmm. to the majority of people. Right. And so it is a place where you can create your own stage, your own set, whatever, and you can be the producer and do what you want. And that's what we talk yeah. with people all the time. How is this your second stage? Not marketing for your primary thing, but the thing, right? Manifest in a different way. Yeah. And that's how you want to think about it as a creative and as, as an artist. This is what I am and do manifest in this medium. Not this is me marketing the actual thing I do. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's, it's available. You know, you don't have to have crazy but amounts of money to make social media worthwhile in your budget.
Yeah. Yeah. You don't need to have any money at that, at yeah, that. spend right. any money on social media right off the bat. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. Awesome. And so, okay. So with, with tilt then now shifting gears, how did that come about? Cause this is a really special thing that you do. And I think it's so cool. And I would just love to hear how you got started in this, how this idea, uh, the genesis of this idea. So I have a vision disorder, uh, that is progressive and, uh, it's an optic nerve atrophy specific to my optic nerves. Um, and it's fairly rare. I mean, I think it's very rare. Um, I had to go to like many, high profile hospitals before I could get diagnosed as a kid with what was going on. Um, and then I saw, uh, Lisa Leistad, who is, was just this incredible. And I think she's only doing research now, I believe maybe even retired, but she was still practicing at the time. And she was with the Cleveland clinic. And so, uh, she was a neural ophthalmologist and she, within about five minutes was like, this is what's happening. It's this rare thing called optic nerve atrophy. Um, and so the little fibers in each optic nerve die over time. I had never considered myself a person with a disability because I was still, you know, up until I was 22 or 23, I was still able to drive and that and able to do pretty much everything in my life. Um, when I stopped being able to drive, which was right when I moved to Austin, because I, I lost some of my depth perception. And that's the thing mm -hmm. about this disorder is that it's not predictable, like what some people lose this thing or this thing or whatever. And I started to lose a little bit of my depth perception. And I realized it was harder to tell how close I was to things than, than I would feel comfortable with. So I stopped driving and, um, you know, I started to think about when I, I was also very inspired by um, the Deaf West Broadway production of Big River that had been done. Pro oh, my gosh, it's been so many years now. It's probably 25 yeah. years ago or more. Um, but it was so amazing. And it, it really opened up more to me about what theater could do. So I think those two things together really made me think when I get to a, a place in my career where I'm really established, I would love to pursue maybe finding again finding a disability theater company that's already in existence to work with um, in some way, whatever that would be. So I, when that time happened, I reached out to a friend of mine who has a son um, with a rare disability, and she was very connected to the disability world here in Austin and also to the theater world. And I said, would you be interested in, in talking about something along these lines? And she said, I just don't really don't have the time. It's not the time in my life right now. And that was the end of that conversation. Fast forward two years, I get this random email from this woman named Gail Dalrymple, who was a good friend of this friend that I just mentioned. <laughs> um, and she said, I'm really looking to start a theater company uh, for actors with disabilities. My son, Peter, uh, is about to matriculate out of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired at like a, maybe 24 or 25 years old. Um, and I have realized that Peter has relatively little social um, socialization or social opportunities, I guess, mm. outside of theater. And so I'm just now realizing this. And he, what is he going to do when there's no theater in his life when he graduates? And he also, Peter, had a very special relationship and has a very special relationship with the person who was the head at the time of the... Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Theater Department, whose name is Robert Pearson. So Gail had already had Robert on board 
And she said, you know, I would love for you to meet with us because this other friend of mine had had really um, said that I would be a good person to work with and whatever. So we got together and we said, okay, what is this going to be? And TILT actually doesn't stand for anything. I've thought about many times since cre creating like an acronym. <laughs> what that acronym is. <laughs> but what it is, is it's about tilting perspectives, right? And seeing things, or not even seeing, because we have a lot of visually impaired and blind actors, um, experiencing the world on a tilt. Hmm. And so TILT Performance Group was born, and that was 10 years ago almost now, nine years ago. And through that time, I am the only one of the co-founders who is still with the organization. Um, but we now have, uh, I'm now salaried, we have a salaried executive director. And so it has really, um, it has really come to a place uh, that is, that is um, something that we're all very proud of. In uh, about three weeks, we're going to um, premiere a new version of a musical that my friend Andrea Grody wrote. Andrea, um, was the musical director for the band's visit on Broadway, Tootsie on Broadway. Awesome. And uh, and so, you know, we're now at the point where Tilt can sort of premiere a rewrite of a work by a Broadway um, musical director. And yeah. so that's something that really we have come a very long way from being what was in essence sort of an after-school devising program initially, uh -huh. um, where we would meet very sporadically. And, you know, I think our first season, we did maybe one show in that year. And that was it. That was all we did, right? And now we have a way for tilters, as they're called, our actors, to have a touch point with us almost every single day of the week through Tilt U, which is uh, our education arm that was born during the pandemic. Uh -huh. um, so it's a it's a something that I am very proud of. And I'm also very proud that we've kind of become um, a company that people look to throughout the, the, the country uh, to uh, for like practices and strategy and consulting. We've been doing a lot of that kind of work. Um, so we've built up that presence and uh, it's something that's very special to me. We, we at the moment, we probably have about 20 company members. Um, we're looking to grow that as we're able to now be more uh, virtual as well and and, and, mm -hmm. and thus more accessible, which is something that's very important to us. But our, you know, our mission is to shatter disability stereotypes through inclusive theater. And yeah. um, that, that's what we're, that's our North Star for everything we're doing. And we do three to four productions a year, typically. Um, and Tilt U, um, that education branch, um, I'm going to have to talk to you about doing a voiceover class. They would love that. Um, that actually, would be so fun. Yeah, Absolutely once, down. You know, so it's so it's so it's a really a, a really special thing. And um, tiltperformance.org for anyone who's interested. Uh, yeah. And and I'll also say again, talking about anxiety, I hope that anyone out there who may um, know someone with a disability who might be interested in in what we do, or someone who's listening with a disability who might be interested in what we do, it is a very very low barrier audition process um and we have very few sort of requirements um for being a tilt company member in terms of you know commitment or um amount that someone's able to to be with us so i hope that you will check us out if you're if you're listening to this and hear it because uh we really want to be open and accessible to a to a very wide range of uh performers um and writers and authors and composers with disabilities that what a special sacred place that you've created. That is so 
it's just it's amazing, Adam. It's so freaking cool, <laughs> for lack of well, uh, many better words. But well, I really have to say, I know we're running out of time, but I really have to say that um, you know, I think I have sort of continued it on, and certainly our executive director Amy Tarver, who literally we hired three days before the lockdown for the pandemic. <laughs> is is so responsible for the fact that we're even still here um these two or three years later but without gail and i learned so much about i you know again because i never really had identified as a person with a disability for whatever reason um i had not been very ensconced in the disability world and so i would never have been able to do to continue working with tilt on my own without the just vast knowledge and network and example of Gail and Robert, um, my the two co-founders. Um, they really were the ones who were instrumental in getting this going because they were the ones I learned pretty much everything from. Um, mm -hmm. Before then, I started learning it from all of our company members and the and the organizations I became part of. And so, so they were the they were the foundation of all of it. It's awesome. And and so for for people listening, and I'm going to post all the links. Um, that to everything that we've spoken about and, and everything that you sent me um, in the episode description. So if you're listening and you're curious, check it out wherever you're listening and, um, and you'll be able to have a, a direct link to everything that Adam's doing um, for tilt specifically. If is it, I, I know you said that composers, directors, is it any, any, anything in the theater realm, musical theater realm that you are interested in uh shop work, lighting, is it everything and anything, or is it more performance geared? That's a great question. So um, we would love at some point to be able to do, and, and during the pandemic, we did have a class that we offered um, where somebody, uh, we, we kind of delivered these kits to people and they were to the actors and they were able then to build props and learn about how props are built and learn how some things work and sound <laughs> cool. uh, and things like that virtually. Um, but because we, uh, we don't necessarily always perform in the same location, um, it's a little trickier for us to have um, consistency in equipment that is in a place that's just kind of lights mm -hmm. that are already hung in the air or sound that's already installed in the place that just lives there in order to really be able to to have folks who do that we do have our first on this production we're working on right now our first company member who has ever been a stage manager for a production oh um, cool so we're doing that kind of thing but really it's pretty performance geared but if someone is like you know i write plays or i write poetry or i write creative writing and i am not really interested in performing Perfectly great. We'd love to have you. Um, it's so it's all kind of performance geared or creation geared. We mm -hmm. would love at some point to get to bring in some more tech to what we do. Uh, yeah. We're focused right now on, on those things, but it does not mean that someone has to feel like they want to perform if they have another way they would like to contribute. Awesome. And we don't only, do, in fact, we frequently don't do musicals. Um, so it's not all musical oh, cool. theater. We devise and create work that's original. In fact, we often don't do work that has already been scripted. Most, the vast majority <laughs> cool. of the work we do with Tilt is created and devised by the company. Wow. Um, so, and is, may incorporate music or may not. Um, that's up to every, the way that we as a group 
um, conceive of every production we do. Um, so we are doing this particular season just because of not knowing what, what COVID is, is bringing at this very moment. We decided it would be uh, better logistically to do two shows that were already scripted as opposed to devising them. But throughout the whole pandemic, everything we did that um, you can see on our website, we have it a way for people to rent our productions that we did through the pandemic. I think we did something like 10 productions during the pandemic that were That's all virtual. amazing. I, and they I all really am so inspired by and in awe of theater companies that figured out how to, and artists in general, because I mean, you know, because you are one and have been around all of uh, the performing side of things for uh, forever. And it's just, it's, it's incredible to see how, how the theater community specifically has navigated the pandemic and, and all of these hard <laughs> hurdles and flaming hoops we've had to jump through. Um, and it's another one of the, guests on the show Danny Romeo uh is in immersive theater in in London and has done a lot of immersive theater work uh in New York as well and is starting his own th immersive theater company and just hearing him talk about how they navigated things in London with uh immersive theater when you can't be immersive is it's amazing and it's just it's really oh, special cool. to see that and hear that y'all are still have have created that space did create that space and are continuing to do that um for your company members. It's just, it's awesome. It's, and it's been rewarding and challenging because, you know, some of our folks who um, are blind, for example, had never done something like use zoom. So it was cool because tilt a lot, because we had volunteers who would literally just get on the phone with, with these folks. And in some cases we provided data plans for people because they were unable to access those financially. Um, you know, they were able, we had volunteers who would get on the phone and spend hours just trying to get someone's video working because they didn't know because they were blind. Um, yeah. And they're there in isolation alone, right? So how do you tell someone, well, hit this button when they can't see it? But we had, <laughs> we have such incredible volunteers who for hours and hours would sit on the phone with people auditorily. And we had one company member who, um, in one of our productions, we, in the first act, because of the way it was filmed, we filmed everything over Zoom. In the first act, you just see this company member's photo because they weren't able to connect. This is a person who's blind. And by the second act, that volunteer had gotten, however they did it, I don't know, but had gotten that person to be able to get on Zoom and turn their video on and do all the things. That's awesome. As a blind person, totally one person to one person. And, um, and so you see this company member on the video in the second, and that's just a story I love to tell because I think it epitomizes why we do tilt in yeah. many ways. Um, and now that person is able to like zoom with whomever outside of tilt as well. So, yeah, something we completely take, I, I completely take for granted is the ability to just do this effortlessly, what we're doing now. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Well, Adam, thank you so much for taking so much time with me. It's so good to see you. It's always great to get to talk and, and catch up. And oh I know I'll see you in, in person at some point soon here in the next uh, couple of weeks. You know um, it. I, uh, before I cut you loose, I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you. Yes. Uh, just uh, top of mind, whatever comes first. Love it. What is a nickname that your parents used to call you when you were a kid? Ad. Ad. Great. Just Where did that yeah. come from? Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> who Some inspires of the you? Not be appropriate for uh, 
for him. <laughs> it's a podcast. We can say whatever we want. Um, uh, who inspires you right now? The the Tilt company members, particularly with this production that we're doing, really, truly. Yeah. Uh, what is a piece of content that you can't get enough of right now? Book, podcast, music, TV show? <laughs> I've been watching um, reruns of House. Awesome. And that is, that's been, yeah, that's, I don't know. I couldn't tell you why, but that's what's kept me. It's kept just my what's on. Yep. <laughs> Great. Uh, last question. You can only have pizza one last time. Where from and what's on it? Uh, via 313. Oh, yes. Uh, and it's the, um, I forget what they call it, but it's the vegan one because I'm about, I try to eat about 80 to 90% vegan and they have a great vegan pizza at Via 313. It's really great. Yeah. Via, Via 313 or Via 313 is a pizza place here in Austin, Detroit style pizza. It is, it is dangerous. They opened one up two minutes from our house in Cedar Park here and it's so, so dangerous. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. Adam, thank you. Thank you again. This has just been a joy to, to get to catch up and, and see you. And, and thank you for, for taking an hour. I can't believe it. An hour and 10, 15 minutes has already yeah. gone by so quickly. <laughs> thank you, Tim. I really appreciate it. And it was great to talk to you and hear more of your story too. Yeah. Thank you very much. I will, uh, I'll talk to you again soon. That's great. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Second Cup with my friend, Adam Roberts. To keep track of Adam on social media, you can follow his accounts at Adam Roberts Voice, at Resolutionary Works, at Tilt Performance, and at St. Luke Austin. You can also check out his websites, resolutionaryworks.com, adamkroberts.com, and tiltperformance.org. All of these links are in the episode description below to make it super easy to find him and get in touch. Second Cup is created and produced by Tim Heller Creative, LLC. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, I invite you to show support in any of the following ways. First is by sharing episode links on social media and tagging at Tim Heller Creative. Second is by rating and leaving reviews in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening and watching. Third is subscribing, liking, and commenting on YouTube, Tim Heller Creative. And finally, if you want to support financially, you can Venmo me at Tim Heller Creative or reach out to me via email to tim at timhellercreative.com to discuss sponsoring one or several episodes. Again, all funds will be used directly to improve the show and provide the best experience for guests and listeners alike. Tune in next time for another incredible conversation and hopefully to learn something new from a really cool person. Later, skaters. Later, skaters.